The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for June 25th, 2022. Over 1,000 people died and at least 3,000 were injured in an earthquake that struck eastern Afghanistan Wednesday, the deadliest to hit the country in two decades. This was one of a number of natural disasters around the world this week. Devastating floods claimed lives and displaced communities in India, Bangladesh, and southern China. While record heat waves reached a high of 104 degrees Fahrenheit in northern China, In light of these catastrophic events, I picked an episode from May 4th, 2021, where David Priest sat down with Niall Ferguson to discuss the politics of catastrophe and government responses to crises ranging from earthquakes to pandemics. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 4th, 2021. 2020 was a remarkable year in so many ways, not least of which was the COVID-19 pandemic and its effects. Why did so many countries bungle their responses to it so badly? And what should their leaders have learned from earlier disasters and the pathologies clearly visible in the responses of their predecessors to them? Neil Ferguson is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the author of more than a dozen books, including, most recently, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Neil joined me for the Lawfare podcast to discuss everything from earthquake zones to viruses to world wars, all with a mind to how our political and social structures have or have not adapted to the certainty of continued crises. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 4th, Neil Ferguson on catastrophes and how to manage them. Your new intellectual project, Neil, is remarkably wide in scope, even in relation to your past efforts. And it's wide both temporally and topically from deep geologic prehistory to the COVID-19 pandemic and the Cold War with China, from volcanic eruptions to economic systems and war with a review of dystopian science fiction thrown in. Why so broad and why this project now? I was 
trying to think historically about the unfolding disaster of COVID-19 and began to realize that one needed to contextualize with more than just past pandemics, which a number of people were doing last year. Mm -hmm. And my, I suppose my eureka moment was the, the thought that all disasters like Tolstoy's happy families are alike, whether we call some natural and others man-made, and that it might be helpful to to write a general history of, of disasters. Because I do think that a lot of, of what we call history is in fact one damn disaster after another. Historians definitely gravitate towards disasters, but there are those who specialize in the disasters we call wars and those who specialize in the disasters we call revolutions. And then there are the ones who write about plagues or famines. My instinct was that we could have a general theory or at least a general history of disaster. And that would help put this extraordinary year or year and a half or however long it lasts into context. And I think it's fair to say that civilization itself can be described as a societal response to, if not catastrophes and large disasters, to smaller scale ones like uh, the need for a harvest, like the need for different trades eventually, and even the need to protect against things like fire and contamination from you know, sewers. The growth of civilization itself is related to that fact, but I'm not sure anyone has taken such a, a wide view of this. Our first step, perhaps, is getting our hands around a very big problem set. So what are the biggest categories of disasters in human history? And why are these flavors so toxic to human life? Well, you're right that, that civilization is, in many ways, disaster management. Most of history, in the sense that we can write it on the basis of, of records, mostly written records, is actually the history of agrarian civilizations. And they are inherently prone to climatic disaster as well as to the disasters caused by pathogens, mm -hmm. whether those pathogens hit crops or the people who grow and consume the, the crops. There's another point which is worth adding that is a little bit more abstract. From the very earliest times, as far as we can tell from the history of religion, the human species has been obsessed with the ultimate catastrophe, its extinction, the destruction of everything. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to understand that we're fascinated by that idea as a species and, and therefore our relationship to disaster is not only a practical material one, it's also a spiritual one. We, we do tend to slightly exaggerate the probability of the end of the world. And I talk a little bit about that at the beginning. This means that, that we often overreact, or at least can overreact, to, to disasters. A, a common feature of some of the things I talk about in the book is that even if you're just in a relatively localized wildfire, you, you have the feeling that you're witnessing the end of the world. But of course, you're not. Now, most disasters are local. There's no such thing as a, a global earthquake. Mm. And in the same way, most, most conflicts are relatively localized. There really are only a couple of world wars or 
three if you count the Seven Years' War, which was pretty global. Even those left large parts of the world completely unaffected and even larger parts only marginally affected. There wasn't much fighting in in Canada. (laughs) though Canadians did fighting in the world wars, and you could give many other examples. Something I wrote about in a previous book, The War of the World. At any event, Mm -hmm. this is part of the challenge that you're trying to kind of deal with an extraordinarily heterogeneous set of things that we call disasters. Some things that are very famous disasters killed hardly anybody. It was an enormously impactful disaster in American popular culture when the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up just after launch, but not many people died. Still, it it was a disaster and it's a memorable one. So what are we looking for if we're going to make sense of all this? I think we're looking for excess mortality on a very large scale, We can understand disasters with small numbers of deaths because of their cultural impact, but we shouldn't imagine that the the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster belongs in the same ballpark as World War II. And it seems as if there are relatively few disasters that really kill large proportions of the world's population. Pandemics win, the really big pandemics like the Black Death, which who knows, could have killed as many as a third of, of people living in the world, according to some estimates. I mean, those those really stand out. And so do the really big wars, particularly World War II, which seems to have been the most destructive conflict in, in history. Although there are claims that can be made for, for earlier periods, the statistics are pretty hazy. What does this immediately make us realize? It makes us realize that disasters are not normally distributed. There's not a bell curve with an average disaster sitting in the middle of it. Actually, Mm -hmm. disasters seem to follow something like a power law. And that turns out to be true, in fact, about a lot of different forms of disaster, from wildfires to, to earthquakes. And this is what makes disaster such a problematic thing to understand. We're mentally quite attracted to normal distributions. We struggle a bit to think about the the power law distributions or just the random distributions which characterize the incidence of warfare. But the critical point is that there are a very small number of very big disasters and then a lot of pretty small disasters. The distributions have, as they like to say in this statistics world, fat tails. And so I think part of the challenge of understanding a disaster as you're living through it. And that's what we've been doing is to get a sense of where it belongs on the disaster scale. And putting it very simply, right now, COVID-19 is three orders of magnitude smaller, as far as we can figure it out, than the Black Death. Mm -hmm. Related to that, individually, and I think you'd also say as societies, We members of Homo sapiens sapiens simply aren't that good at calculating in the face of uncertainty or acting in domains with largely unpredictable events like catastrophes. Instead, we essentially ignore catastrophic possibilities. Why is that? I think it's it's actually a smart response in many ways just to put the disaster out of mind and carry on as if it's never going to happen. During the Cold War, which I'm old enough to remember, we all, in theory, lived under a potential mushroom cloud of of nuclear 
war. But in truth, did we really think that much about it? As far as I can see, working my way through the history of the Cold War on other projects, most people got on with life as if it wouldn't happen. And we can tell that because behavior didn't radically change. When the Cold War ended, there was a a nice theoretical prediction that savings rates would be affected and that the savings rate had been depressed by the danger of Armageddon. Why save? We could all be ash tomorrow. But if that had been right, then the savings rate would have gone up after 1989 or 91. Mm -hmm. And of course, it went down even Mm -hmm. lower. So I think part of the story is that because you cannot attach meaningful probabilities to doom, to disaster, you therefore have to just carry on, uh, regardless the way people who live near near me in the Stanford area carry on, knowing that one day there'll be some bloody great earthquake. Maybe you've even seen the movie San Andreas, where you get that that visualization of of catastrophe. But you can't really spend too much time thinking about that. Each each day, you maybe pay your insurance premium and and carry on with life. It's a similar problem that you face if you're a soldier. One of my favorite ditties, songs from World War One, which I quote in the book, is the bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you but not for me. O <laughs> death, where is thy sting-a-ling-a-ling, O grave thy victory? I mean, that, that was sung by British soldiers in the trenches on the Western Front in, in World War One. In truth, the probability of being killed or mutilated was really pretty high if you were serving on the Western Front. But it was very hard to to live with that thought. So the bells of hell would go tingling-a-ling for someone else. I think all of this is how we cope psychologically with that imminence of catastrophe that is a reality of the human condition. And it must be said, was a much greater reality in the past. We, we actually live much more cosseted lives today than, than our ancestors did. But for them, with the presence of, of death really quite, quite close at, at hand, the, there had to be some way of living other than living in fear. So I think we combine a sort of insouciance, uh, bells of hell mentality, with a preoccupation through religion, with some much grander end of everything, uh, which for some reason we find it easier to think about. Maybe because it keeps us from having to make some hard choices about resource investment for highly impactful but low probability scenarios like a disaster that rises to the level of a true catastrophe. I think that's right. And and a kind of common misconception that usually enjoys a surge of popularity immediately after a disaster is that more should have been done. We should have been better prepared. We must learn to be better prepared for the next time this happens. And that usually means that you then prepare for the last war. Right. And I'm sure we'll divert resources into pandemic preparedness and then be blindsided by some other form of disaster. Because I think the heterogeneity of disaster is an important theme of this book. There are lots of different ways in which disaster can strike. If you think only about one, and currently that's a temptation because of the great focus on climate change within the global elite, you'll probably be caught out more than once by something else. It was bizarre to be at Davos in January 2020, 
surrounded by people who wanted to talk about climate change when it was obvious to me at least that a pandemic had already begun and that planes with the virus were were flying into Europe even as the conference was happening so i think understanding that disaster is multifaceted and that it's a mistake to be very well prepared for just one scenario is a part of of the book's message and that that has a a further kind of implication which is that it's better to be generally prepared for adversity than to be very specifically prepared for one or two forms of adversity. It's significant in my mind that amongst the best performers in the world in managing the COVID-19 disaster were Taiwan, South Korea, and Israel, though Israel had a, a, a rough summer. On the whole, its performance has been very good. And of course, it was one of the leaders when it came to vaccine deployment. These are countries that have reasons to be paranoid, reasons to be generally vigilant because mm-hmm. their their neighbors pose existential threats and, and these can take more than one form. So I do think that if one looks at those countries, what's striking is the nimbleness, the speed with which they reacted by contrast with the extraordinary slowness with which our bureaucracy uh, reacted, even although ex ante on paper, the US was was very well prepared for for a pandemic. That was what it it seemed, and and it turned out not to be. I think it was not prepared for this particular kind of pandemic. It was prepared for maybe a nasty influenza pandemic. But when it when it turned out not to be that, the system failed quite badly. I'm interested in that observation about the relative success of a Taiwan and a South Korea compared to so many others. And in your relation of that to the presence of this existential threat, this overbearing sense of something can go wrong, therefore we will respond better when there is a crisis. Because there are other parallels here related to the other kinds of disasters that you look at. For example, Japan, Indonesia, There are others, but Japan and Indonesia stand out immediately when I think about the probability of catastrophic earthquakes combined with the probability of major volcanic eruptions and tsunamis and other natural disasters exacerbated by population, location, and things of that sort. And yet not all of the countries that have a more, I would say, a more frequent experience with disasters of that nature responded as well as the South Korea, the Taiwan, and and as you mentioned, at least early in the pandemic and later with vaccines, Israel. Is there some, in a sense, carryover effect between categories of disasters that can help people get through ones perhaps that they didn't imagine or they thought were highly unlikely, but certainly can come at any time? I think in the case of of Taiwan and and South Korea, it was the fact that they learnt that the lessons of SARS and MERS, where we really didn't, that that was important. You're right to mention Japan and Indonesia, because I spend quite a lot of the book talking about geological disaster, something about which we've rather forgotten, but which in those countries, there remains a very keen awareness. I think the history of Japan's attempts to manage earthquake risk illustrates the difficulty 
of getting it right because they really did try to come up with some predictive basis for dealing with the earthquakes inherent in their geographical location and and again and again fell short with Fukushima only the most recent example of of a disaster they didn't quite take the anticipated form and it exposed the inadequacy of planning with respect to protecting nuclear power stations. Indonesia, if all you knew about the history of the world was where large volcanic eruptions had happened, would be a place nobody would live. Mm -hmm. But the thing about volcanic eruptions, really big ones, is that they're infrequent enough for people to forget the dangerous nature of of the neighborhood. I mean, we'll, we'll see, I think, over time, one of the themes that I've I've touched on in the book illustrated again and again, which is that disasters just happen more frequently in Asia than they do in North America. And the reason for that is is partly population uh, concentration, the existence of really large cities, but it's also the nature of the neighborhood. I mean, there really are a lot of things that can go wrong geologically if you're, if you're there. So what does this tell us? Well, I think it tells us that this is an extraordinarily difficult thing to get right and that you can put a lot of resources into disaster planning and preparedness and still be caught out. Uh, So one shouldn't, I think, adopt a position of, as it were, superior wisdom. Part of the point of this book is, is to show that it's really difficult and sometimes it's just sheer luck that that gets you there. Or sometimes in the case of of Taiwan and South Korea, society has taken a decision with respect to the use of technology that other societies just weren't ready to take. The use of contact tracing in South Korea in particular involved gathering data that that in the United States people simply weren't ready Mm -hmm. to make available to a contact tracing app. So I think one can't one has to be careful about drawing enormous broad brush generalizations and saying this is the way to do it. I do think, though, that that in terms of using technology to cope with contagion, mm-hmm. there really is a lot to be learned from what the Taiwanese did. Because there, it seems to me, they've thought more deeply about the dangers to individual liberty posed by that kind of technology than we have if you're sitting right next to the ultimate surveillance state, which is what the People's Republic of China has become, you naturally don't want to replicate it. And I've been fascinated and inspired by Audrey Tang's work as the minister without portfolio, but essentially for digital matters in Taiwan, to, to use technology in ways that empower citizens without undermining their, undermining their individual liberties. And the contact tracing technology there seems to me to be exemplary in the way that it's been developed and used. So I think we all need to learn a lot more about how Taiwan uses technology in ways that are not hostile to individual liberties, because the assumption in the US and in much of Europe is that you just can't do this kind of thing without Mm -hmm. compromising individual liberties. And I found the argument very unconvincing last year that we couldn't really do contact tracing that way because of our tradition of civil liberties. Meanwhile, we were essentially putting half the population under house arrest. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't seem like a great victory for civil liberties to me. You, you mentioned in there the aspect of contagion and how it relates to so many of these disasters that may have natural causes but are truly made catastrophic due to the 
the social effects, the human effects. And I'd like to turn there to networks and their relation to contagion as the most decisive determination of when a crisis does become a catastrophe. Talk us through the criticality of networks. Well, my last book, The Square and the Tower, was an attempt to introduce network science to the study of history. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think one can really write history without some understanding of how networks function, and in particular social networks, though, though not only those. And the theme of that book was that a great deal of what we, we study in, in the past is characterized by network effects, religions that, that go global. Not many have done that. Lots of cults, but only a handful of world religions or, or ideologies, secular ideologies that do the same thing. The phenomenon of, of contagion is is a recurrent one in, in history. And many of the things that we call revolutions are really just essentially network stories where an idea goes viral and it spreads through a network in the way that, say, Lenin's ideas spread through the Russian population sure. around 1917. But of course, at the same time, there are contagions of a biological nature, and often these interact. So I was very struck when I was writing The Square and the Tower by the ways in which towards the end of World War One, you simultaneously had actual contagions in the public health sense because of the so-called Spanish flu, and you had ideological contagions of, of Bolshevism and also nationalism morphing into fascism. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of where I was going in the period prior to 2020. As soon as the pandemic began, and I think I first became sure that it was going to happen in January of 2020, I noticed that there was already a contagion of fake news about it. And so the leitmotif, as I began thinking about what was going to happen, was the interplay between the real, as it were, physical contagion caused by the virus, and then this confounding contagion of, of nutty ideas about it, which the internet seems perfectly configured to, to disseminate. The reason that network effects matter is that they make the global disasters. If, if there's no network effect of any kind, then a disaster's localized, like the earthquake in Lisbon that Voltaire writes about in Candide. I mean, he doesn't feel the tremor, but he hears about it and is moved by it. The 18th century philosophers were very interested in this notion that a disaster could happen in another country very far away. Adam Smith gives the example of a catastrophe in China. And what was their moral relationship as citizens of the world to such a disaster. But there are disasters that are truly global, and COVID-19 is not the first of these. Actually, some of the great volcanic eruptions of the past, because they affected the, the network that is the, the world's climate, had, had global impacts. And we, we can see that the great pandemics of the medieval and early modern period were, were global, particularly the Black Death, which we're understanding more and more as a truly Eurasian phenomenon rather than a European phenomenon, which was how we used to think about it. So when you get something like SARS-CoV-2, a virus that is spread, a uh, respiratory disease essentially, that is spread relatively easily because of the ways in which asymptomatic people can spread it, you are almost certain to have a global pandemic. And I'd spent enough time in, earlier in my career looking at the 
1819 influenza to know to have a reasonable hunch about how that would how would look even though at the beginning one had no real sense of how deadly the virus was it was pretty clear that it was going to go global and i found it stunning really truly stunning how hard it was to persuade people of that in europe in, in january and in in the us in february and even into into march it was it was remarkable to me how bipartisan denial was at that early stage tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the amazon music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then... Weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had Lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. 
And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the Lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. It's interesting. You mentioned the the great pandemic of 1918-19. And yet one fascinating comparison worth digging into here is between a, a different one. That is between especially the U.S. government and societal response to COVID-19 and the U.S. governmental and societal response to the Asian flu outbreak in 1957, which was not entirely dissimilar in its danger from COVID-19 in 2020. Talk to us about that. What's the story here on 1957 and why the reaction was so different and what, if anything, we should have learned from it? I got very excited when I realized that there had been a, an influenza pandemic in 1957 and I had somehow never heard of it. And it, it struck me as even more interesting. Once I'd convinced myself that this was not going to be as bad as 1918-19, that it might actually be quite a lot like 1957-58. And I owe my good friend Nicholas Christakis for this. It was it was Nicholas who, I think in a tweet, alluded to 57-58, and I think he just put a chart up hmm. early on in the pandemic. And I thought, that's extraordinary. I didn't even know about that. How come? So I started digging, and there's a chapter in the book that deals with this in some detail. And, and sure enough, at this point, of course, it's not over. I, I think COVID-19 has some way still to go. And I think it will 
it will ultimately be worse globally than 1957-58. But at this point, it's not yet much worse. It's actually very close in terms of the proportion of the world's population it's Mm. killed, almost exactly the same at this point. Mm -hmm. And so I thought to myself, well, this is interesting because, by the way, just for the sake of perspective, the 1980-19 influenza was about 40 times worse than COVID-19 so far. This is actually a better analogy, and it's a pity that it's so little known because I think back in March 2020 when the other Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist at Imperial College, was talking about... 2.2 million deaths potentially if there weren't lockdowns, Mm. he was implying that we were facing 1980-19 again. Mm -hmm. And I even then was skeptical about that on the basis of what data we had out of China. It didn't seem remotely likely that it was going to be 1980-19 because 1980-19 killed young people. I mean, it killed people in the prime of life more than it Mm -hmm. killed the elderly. Uh, And it was obviously not that. But in 57-58, which was certainly less lethal than 1918-19, you had a, an essentially similar problem. Not identical, because the viruses are very different. But it was similar in the sense that it originated in Asia, in China. It spread very rapidly, as rapidly actually as COVID-19, despite the fact that a lot of travel then was still on ships rather than planes. And the challenge that it posed was essentially the same. People knew enough about influenza pandemics to know that there would be significant excess mortality from a new strain of influenza, which this clearly was. But their response in the United States was completely the opposite, really, of our response to COVID-19. There were no lockdowns. They didn't even close schools. There was no state of emergency declared. And the amount of of money that the federal government spent was a tiny rounding error compared with the amounts that have been spent in the last 12 or 13 months. And that will sound very strange to our listeners because the kind of conventional understanding now of the measures that were taken, like closing restaurants, closing schools, putting an immense societal burden out there, was that that did help at least flatten the curve temporarily. And yet you found in 1957-58, very few, if any of those measures were taken, and yet it did not go critical. Why? Well, I think to be absolutely clear that the counterfactual here is not that we could have behaved as they did and had a comparably low death toll. That, Mm. That I think would be completely the wrong inference to draw. I think if we'd behaved as they did in 1957, there would have been substantially higher, maybe twice as much mortality than there's there's Mm -hmm. been. But what's interesting is that I think we can see that a lot of the measures that were taken, particularly at the beginning in the period of March to the summer, of very strict lockdowns in many states, as well as in many countries around the world, that a lot of the things that were done then were pretty blunt instruments as a way of dealing with this particular virus and did a great deal of unintended harm in addition to the harm that the virus was causing and certainly caused a massive economic dislocation leading to a kind of cascade of events, financial crisis followed by extraordinary fiscal and monetary responses 
and you look back at 1957-58 and it's it's actually imperceptible in the economic data that there was a pandemic at that time you can see there was a big uptick in absence from work and from school but none of this was mandated the advice essentially that the Eisenhower administration got from its public health experts was there's nothing you can do to stop this spreading and so just devote all energies to to vaccination to getting a vaccine and then deploying it and otherwise try to minimize the disruption right. that this is going to cause now they had a much much better resourced healthcare system in 1957 in terms of hospital capacity than we do today and that was something that i think i i should have made more of in the book actually that they really didn't face the the overwhelming that our relatively optimized hospital systems faced right so that's one important difference but i think taking another step back and trying to put this in perspective that this this revealed some fundamental differences between our state and society today and our state and society then i'll try and say what those briefly were one i think the federal government of 1957 was a far nimbler beast. And you can't help but be struck by the focus and and speed with which the authorities responded. CDC in 2020 played a pretty disastrous part. It actually made it harder to get COVID-19 tests done at the beginning when it should have been making it far easier. Mm -hmm. And that's just one of many examples I could give. So public health bureaucracy of 2020 looks sclerotic by comparison with the 1957 edition. I, I might add that the president of 1957, Dwight Eisenhower, was a man as experienced in problems of public uh, service as his counterpart Donald Trump was inexperienced, and that was not a, a trivial factor. But the other, the other thing that's worth saying is that American society in 1957, not to idealize it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, was nevertheless better prepared for the, the shock of excess mortality. And remember, one big difference between these two cases is that young people were, including teenagers, were falling very sick and, and in some cases dying unlike in in the COVID-19 case where hardly any really young people were affected last year. I think that the society was more resilient. It was a a society which had a higher level of social and and, and religious capital, and it had more experience of adversity. Hmm. And and I think that that's something that that really seems to me to be a, a noteworthy difference, that, that the society that had been grappling with polio, that that was still with fresh memories of of world war, not to mention depression. This was a a society that could cope with a a pandemic like the Asian flu and cope with it so well that it sort of faded from memory. And and that's perhaps the most striking thing. I'm fascinated here by the the lessons to be drawn. You're very clear that there, there is no cycle of history explanation here, right? That the the nature of these events and their relation to the power laws is is such that we we aren't going to be able to prepare for a massive pandemic within a certain year range or even a particularly catastrophic volcanic eruption that instead you you talk about making ourselves more resilient given that catastrophes aren't going away i'm particularly interested in 
in the fact that you note that collectively, we must improve our understanding of primarily two things, of network structure and bureaucratic dysfunction. Why do you highlight those two and, in a sense, minimize the role of leadership or other factors compared to those two? Well, I was very influenced as a, as a young man, a schoolboy, by War and Peace. And Tolstoy's essay at the end, really the recurrent theme of the whole book, is that Napoleon greatly exaggerated his own importance, and, right. and so do people today. And mm-hmm. In reality, one should not understand the events of 1812 as consequences of one man's Hegelian significance. And I, I think as an historian, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that view, not, not because I disbelieve in the great man theory of history, and there are great men and great women and they matter, but because if we attribute too much importance to leaders, we'll miss the pathologies that are the real problem. It was terribly easy last year to just say, we're having a public health disaster because the president's an imbecile. And a lot of people wrote that piece. I read multiple versions of it, implying that if Hillary Clinton had been president, or for that matter, Joe Biden or Barack Obama, we wouldn't have had nearly so many excess deaths. And I don't think that's true. In fact, Ron Klain, Joe Biden's chief of staff, has admitted it's not true because if, and he said this only a couple of years ago, if the 2009 swine flu had been a seriously dangerous virus, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the catastrophe would have been comparable. And the Obama administration got pretty lucky that that swine flu, which spread extremely rapidly through the US population, was not that deadly a virus. So I think that's, that's the first point to make. The second point is that hatred for Donald Trump reached such proportions on the liberal side of the political spectrum that it it essentially made clear thoughts about what was happening very difficult. Remember, when Trump actually suggested the right thing, which was to restrict travel from China in January, the liberal media denounced the suggestion as as racist, even though it was actually one of the few smart things Trump suggested. It was a bit late and it wasn't comprehensive enough, but it was basically right that as soon as this thing was identified, there should have been restrictions on travel from China, and there weren't. So I think we allowed ourselves last year in the US to, to be drawn into a highly simplified morality tale in which the the defects of, of Donald Trump's personality were the reason for the excessive mortality. The same thing happened in the UK, where Boris Johnson played the same part. It's the same story in Brazil, where it's Bolsonaro. But problem one, there are countries with non-populist leaders, think of Belgium, that did even worse in mm-hmm. terms of excess mortality. Not all the Latin American countries that have suffered really badly have populist leaders. So the theory has an obvious flaw, but more importantly than that, if we just focus on the defects of presidents and prime ministers, we'll fail to see how badly our public health bureaucracies failed. And you can't really say that it was somehow Donald Trump's fault that CDC completely screwed up testing. 
or the fact that the Undersecretary for Pandemic Preparedness, Robert Cadleck, was essentially missing in action throughout the crisis, having warned a couple of years before it that we would be SOL if there were a serious pandemic. If we just make it all about Trump and kid ourselves that the pandemic's ending because we elected a Democrat as president, we'll we'll fail to understand what went wrong last year, which I think was very profound and not just about Trump. He made numerous mistakes. I hope I'm clear about that in the book. But that's not the reason for more than half a million of excess deaths in the United States. It's not a sufficient explanation. And we need to recognize the bureaucratic failings that that really are very profound and not exclusive to public health. We had any number of pandemic preparedness plans, 36-page reports the year before the pandemic struck, multiple PowerPoint decks. Every agency seemed to have done its homework, and yet none of it worked. In fact, it backfired when they actually had to put these plans into operation. So that's part one. And part two is that public policy is still being made by people with a lack of understanding of of network effects. And given that what you're trying to do in, in public service, what you're trying to do in government, is to manage the giant social network of a nation state, that's a major deficiency. How few people, it struck me, how few people really understood the significance of the dispersion factor known to the epidemiologists as, as, as K, right? The, the, the fact that basically 80% or thereabouts of infections were caused by 20% of, of infected people didn't really get the attention that it merited. It's a very distinctive feature of coronaviruses. It was true of SARS as well. And it meant that super spreaders and super spreader events were critical to the spread of the disease. Right. That insight, which I remember reading about in Lajla Barabasi's work, one of the doyens of network science, really was absent in the public policymaking. And it led to all the kinds of idiotic measures that were hugely economically disruptive and did no public health good at all. Why did they close the parks and beaches in California? This was a madness it actually increased the probability of infection by confining people indoors. There were so many terrible policy decisions. There still are lots of stupid regulations Hmm. that reflect a failure to understand how contagion really works and what are the things you have to try and disrupt? What are the parts of the network that you have to disrupt if you want to stop a contagion? And the idea that a simple understanding of bureaucratic dysfunction and network structure would improve things could lead one to suggest that totalitarian regimes would be slightly better placed than truly democratic ones simply because of their extensive surveillance, the ability to impose drastic changes upon network structures, to implement plans despite societal objections. However, some of the worst outcomes during this pandemic were connected to totalitarian regimes. And I'm wondering. How outside of that, outside of going to a very intrusive government reaction, how does a simple better understanding of these concepts translate into notably better outcomes in disaster management? It's a critical question. If we conclude from the experience of 2020-2021 that that China has a superior system because it has near total surveillance capacity and can impose draconian restrictions on 
liberty at will. Those implications would be profound well beyond the issue of crisis management. Right. And it would be a disastrous wrong inference, forgetting, amongst other things, that some of the biggest disasters in all of human history Mm -hmm. were, in fact, brought about by totalitarian regimes with precisely these capabilities, even if the technology was more primitive. Remember that the disasters of the 20th century that really, really sear the memory, Stalin's man-made famine and terror, Hitler's Holocaust, Mao's Great Leap Forward, these disasters that killed tens of millions of of people were were products of totalitarian regimes with, with the same basic aspirations that China's leadership seems to have today. I think in reality, the Chinese contribution here was an extraordinarily negative one. In many ways, what began in December, probably December, maybe a bit earlier of 2019, and was only acknowledged to be a a pandemic in late January was like Chernobyl, only with way higher collateral damage. That the response of the Chinese party, of the authorities locally and, and nationally, was extraordinarily similar to the response of the their Soviet counterparts to mm-hmm. the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. But of mm-hmm. course, hardly anybody was killed by the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, whereas we're past the three million mark for COVID. So let's not forget where this began, and it yes. began with lies, just in the way that Chernobyl did. Secondly, I think it's a great mistake to regard China as the role model for pandemic containment because the methods that they used were extremely harsh and and in many ways costly. And the Taiwanese and the South Koreans were able to contain the spread of the virus at much, much lower cost. So I think we've often made the mistake of looking at the wrong China for lessons. Really, the China that got this right was Taiwan, the Republic of China, not mm-hmm. the People's Republic of right. of China. And what, what can we learn from, from that? Well, I think the answer is that when you're facing problems of contagion, your best strategy is to know the structure of the network well enough to limit spread, that is to disable certain edges, certain links, enough to to halt the spread of contagion at a relatively low cost. The sort of blanket restrictions of the sort that were used in China, really the equivalent of sledgehammers to crack nuts. There was actually a plan in place in Taipei in the event that spread got out of control to segment the city into into neighborhoods. In other words, just to break up the the network of urban communications. Because that that's the kind of approach that interests me, where you understand the network that you're trying to manage and, and you therefore can parsimoniously reduce the number of links and, and halt the spread. So I, th- I think there is actually, for policymakers, a, a, really, a couple of really important takeaways here. One is that the mentality, which I think has emerged from American law schools, amongst other places, the mentality of a highly specific regulatory mindset Mm -hmm. that seeks to identify and mitigate all possible risks with considerable precision and pages and pages and pages of regulation. That's the way that leads to disaster, because the more meticulously you prepare for a certain kind of disaster, the more surely you will be overwhelmed by a quite different one that you didn't think about. 
And the second thing is you have to teach your public servants, your bureaucrats, some network science so that they understand that society is not an org chart. It is not a bureaucratic pyramid with the chief executive or senior civil servant at the top. That's just not what societies look like. And we need to think about them far more in terms of network architecture. And if you know the structure of, of the network, you can you can understand much better how a contagion functions. So this seems to me like an opportunity to rethink how we actually train our public servants. And I must add that I think the training for people in the corporate world should be the same because mm. ultimately it's a network problem if you're if you're running a supply chain just as surely as as if you're running a public health service. Sure. And that that raises a potential problem in modern democracies. And maybe we'll, we'll close with, with this and another question about implications. That is, democracy is having its own issues. And people don't elect leaders on their robust plans to train civil servants on network science or those leaders themselves to have experience in contingency planning or catastrophe avoidance, mitigation, or recovery, or even short of that, the best strategic thinking or planning skills. The value in many countries across regions seems to be trending toward leadership as entertainment or leadership as score settling with perceived others. Are you optimistic for the the possibility of better education about network science and better performance of bureaucracies given this very uncomfortable development of democracies in recent years? I think the alternative is worse. And so one has to kind of Mm. make very clear that the worst possible Mm. disaster would be a general global shift towards the Chinese panopticon, that there is some uh, self-correction at work, even in in the the democracies of of our time after all in the end trump lost because there was a sense that he'd failed the competence test and that and biden won because he had the experience that i think mattered the problem is that having been elected it seems to me the biden administration is now going down the road that i feared it would go down of increasing the size of the state increasing the responsibilities of the central government and empowering still further the kind of elements in the bureaucracy that attach importance to highly questionable policy objectives, anti-racism training, the pursuit of equity, rather than addressing what they could be addressing, which is the many ways in which technology can make public services more efficient. Sure. So I, I think... I think the public's instincts are pretty good on this. Unfortunately, I'm not sure they're going to be fulfilled by by this administration. Populism is a part of the problem, but technocracy or resuscitated social democracy is is not necessarily much of a of a cure. So we're going to have to, I think, work hard on changing the culture in those parts of our system where it can be changed. And here I'm a little gloomy because I think the education system is is an even more troubling problem than democracy itself right now. Our education system from the most elite universities down to many public schools in, in many states seems obsessed with ideological issues that, that are entirely beside the point. And we have a non sequitur problem. It's quite a serious one. 
that was revealed by the huge protests that swept another kind of contagion that swept the country after the murder of George Floyd. In the midst of a pandemic, we suddenly became entirely consumed with the question of of police brutality, a question which we did not specify very well and which we sought to address with a very scant regard for the data. I mean, to outside eyes, this was the craziest of non sequiturs to be having that argument at that point about policing in the midst of a of a pandemic. It still strikes me as as a strange, echoing almost the ways in which during the Black Death people sought to expiate uh, their sins and ward off further hmm. further divine vengeance. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know how we how we can fix this other than to express the cautious hope that in in business, in the corporate sector, there's a strong suspicion that wokeism is not the answer and that the people that are recruited from colleges today are ill-equipped to do the jobs they're asked to do. I think there'll have to be some transformation of postgraduate education at some point soon so that people actually are equipped to deal with the problems I'm discussing. And you could imagine a master's course that would combine some of what I call applied history with network science, Mm. a proper grounding in statistics. I mean, you can train people. It's not rocket science to understand the problems that I'm, I'm talking about. And above all else, just to, to, to get them to understand that, that history is one damn disaster after another, and there will be one at some point you will be confronted by a disaster and it will be the defining moment of your life and, and career. I'm not sure if that's a note of, modified pessimism or modified optimism, but we'll have to end it there. Niall, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast, rate the podcast, and share the podcast on the social media of your choice. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Zachary Frank was our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.